Right now on Tech Radio, Tech Trillionaires. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RT Radio, we bring you the very latest in tech. You're welcome to episode 1003. This week, looking at how Microsoft and Apple are battling it out to see which of them is the richest. Amazon is fighting the law, but will the law win? And we have a big birthday to celebrate this week as well. Also later on, we're going to be taking a look at 15 years worth of cybersecurity disasters with Brian Honan, cybersecurity expert and CEO of BHC. From TechCentral.ie, this is Tech Radio, Episode 1000, with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. Joining me as always is our Editor-in-Chief and Niall Kitson. Niall, oh my God, the money is just insane. How much is Microsoft worth now? Uh, Microsoft uh, and Apple, actually, they're kind of duking it out on this one. Um, There's not much between them, but during the week, Microsoft overtook Apple um, in that I think it became worth $3.3 trillion. That's just both trillion. Both of them are worth $3 trillion plus. Now, uh, I'm sure making the first trillion is the hardest. I'm sure it's all gravy after that. <laughs> I love to quote from Michael O'Leary. Uh, he said, and I, I bet you he's probably right. He says, once you are worth more than 50 million, he says, money becomes irrelevant because you could never mm-hmm. spend that in your lifetime. He says, it just becomes a score for how well you are doing. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so- you find that in sort of inflated markets like art, for example, mm-hmm. you've got people that are so wealthy in the world at the moment, that they just want to feel like they've spent money. And this is leading to inflated values of things. So if you drop 90 million on a piece of art, you're like, I feel like I've bought something expensive. Thank goodness. I don't think think that's it. Uh, No? my, My experience of people who are high net worth individuals is that they are, uh, not stupid with their money. That's how they became high net worth individuals, all right? Uh, and they do. They watch what they're spending. However, if it comes to a case of if you and I were bidding on a Van Gogh hmm. and we were both trillionaires, we would almost pay whatever it is to get that painting just to annoy the other one. Well, I'd, I'd pay and anything to annoy you, Dusty. <laughs> And they could just have the bragging rights. Do you know? Oh, yes, I've got a Van Gogh. I keep it in the toilet. (laughs) You often hear that with uh, actors with the Oscars. They say they keep uh, their their Oscars in the actual bathroom. Who do you think is going to win in the eventual fight anyway between Microsoft and Apple? Do you think Apple has been at the top of the tree for quite a while? Microsoft is now chasing its tail. Do you think they'll overtake? I think... I'm going to sit on the fence and roll out the old argument that they both do different things now and they're both very Mm. good at the different things they do. Mm. Apple is a very, very good consumer hardware company. Um, They've got solid software, uh, which is comparatively unremarkable in relation to their hardware. Uh, Microsoft has a very, very successful software and services business focused on productivity. And Mm. they've got a somewhat underwhelming hardware division that's kind of premium. If you put both of them together, I mean, you would have this giant monolith, perfect tech company that does everything well. 
Um, I think I, you know, there is room in this world for for two trillion dollar companies, and I'm sure the shareholders would agree as well. I think there's something wrong with my life because oh. once upon a time I would be looking at the music charts to see if Dua Lipa or Taylor Swift was at number one, and now we're mm-hmm. discussing Nasdaq to see who's at number one. Apple yeah. and Microsoft chipping on their tail at number seven is Tesla. They're also making the news this week. Why? Yeah, Tesla had their uh, their fourth quarter results, I think it was, uh, come out and they actually missed market expectations. Um, so the actual, um, uh, how would you say, the predictions came in at $690 million more than what they actually brought in. So the, it brought in $25.1 billion, the expectation the fourth quarter was 25.76 billion at this rate who's counting but indeed the shareholders are counting and i think it's it there's a couple of things um that are not going in tesla's favor at the moment um one is they they actually have problems with their cars they have a significant recall going on in america where i think all the cars had to be recalled over their self-driving um software mm. which is uh, it's a level 2 is what the it's a it's a level two application, which is to say you can have it in your car and you can operate, you can have it switched on and all that sort of thing. But the human has the final say, right? So you have to still be focused on the road and capable of intervening if necessary. So yeah. uh, Tesla's on for uh, software, unfortunately, did not um, perform to the levels that they would have liked. So as a result, there's this uh, update that affects every. Tesla car in America. They also, however, had the Cybertruck. Apparently, they're looking at shifting uh, 250,000 of them a year. Um, There's a massive waiting list on them. Mm. They will never be sold in Europe because they don't conform to EU safety standards. So I guess they're quite happy to uh, stick with the US market. And also, uh, they have another factor to deal with. Well, two, two more. One, one positive. So, you know, if your shareholder, relax, take the long view, you'll be fine. Um, which is, uh, apparently there's uh, a mass market car due for 2025, which there uh, apparently is going to be pitched around $25,000, which would be a game changer. Um, yeah. So long as you can get the labor and the parts and that it's reasonably cost effective to build, uh, a twenty-five thousand uh, dollar electric vehicle is is a game changer. I mean, that's 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 huge. Um, if they make it to market in twenty twenty-five, that's a win for everybody. However, on the downside, there is the biggest electric vehicle car company you have never heard of. And that's their that's their tagline on the advertising at the moment because uh, it's with true. Tesla. Uh, oh, sorry. Tesla, yeah, no, it's not Tesla. It's, uh, sorry, who is no. who is the biggest electric car manufacturer I've never heard of? BYD, a Chinese company. Yes, they're, they're, I, yeah. I, have, I, I have heard the phrase. Yeah. I've heard the phrase. And now when you say BYD, yeah. it kind of rings a bell. Oh, who are they yeah. aside from being just Chinese? Well, that's it. I mean, pretty much what, what else do you need to say? I mean, they're, they're an extremely large Chinese company. They've mm-hmm. got the means and now apparently the marketing budget to uh, take on Tesla in the West. Um, Elon Musk himself has come out and basically said, yes, you are a worthy competitor, uh, going so far as to say that BYD could probably crush any of the uh, regular competition in uh, 
the automotive space at the moment. I'm mm. sure that's talking up the competition that, you know, only BYD could take me on and, and look what they're capable of. And oh my goodness, I'm, I'm the hero you but, deserve. Mm, but there are lots of electric cars out there now. I know a lot of mm. people who are driving uh, electric Kias. Right. And are they happy? Yeah, they're very happy. It's the one I'm, I'm not. I'm not throwing that out as sort of a negative no, or anything that. like that. No, no, but uh, kind of when I'm driving, or if I have to get a taxi, a load of taxi drivers drive uh, electric cars as well. So they're kind of they're they're more and more common. And of course, I think it's 2030 or 2025. I think it's 2030. I think it's 2025 actually that they'll stop selling petrol cars altogether, and you'll only be able to buy an electric car. Mm, yeah, I think It'll I think a silver Prius is the mm-hmm. car with the greatest resale value in Ireland at the moment. We've got a silver Prius. Our date. Uh, let me see if Google can come up with an answer. No, it actually can. Uh, starting in 2035, all cars sold in the European Union will be zero emission vehicles, as in electric. Wow. Also, making news uh, this week. Now, eBay, this is not a good news uh, story no. at all. I really, eBay just looked like, you know, kind of Richard's. I'm being polite. Um, basically, they have emailed staff saying, all right, and in the email, they told staff, we've too many employees. Can you imagine opening up an email and seeing that from your boss going, oh, we've too many people on the books. Um, now, they have announced that they are going to be laying off up to a thousand employees worldwide. They haven't said mm-hmm. where just yet, or specifically, they haven't said uh, what's going to happen here in Ireland because it's 900 people. 900 people work for eBay in Ireland. Yeah, quite a substantial operation. Yeah. Uh, So they haven't said what's going to happen here, but they are going to let uh, 9% of their global staff go. They laid off 500 last year, which is 4%. And here's the bits where I think, I mean, it's bad enough laying people off, right? But in the States, they asked employees, all employees to work from home this week. Mm. So they could provide space, privacy, as the people being laid off were given the bad news. Yeah, that's that's one way to put it. Uh, but so, <laughs> actually, actually, yes. this raises a question because we all know what sort of being fired or being let go in the States looks like. I mean, you're given your legal box full of your stuff and escorted out. out of the building by yep. security like you're some sort of felon or something like that. Um, so what happens when you lay off people en masse like that? I mean, do you, are these people fearing a riot or something like that? Or, you know, uh, management to be hounded out of the building or to be attacked in the parking lot or something like that? Yeah. Um, Twitter did something similar. Mm-hmm. It was uh, kind of, we'll send you an email and let you know if your services are required. Um, so this does seem to be a tactic, uh, and it is very much to stop rioting within the building. I think. I, I think it's no, kind of actually. So- okay, I, 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 I've seen this happen, and I was no, no. It's not that I'm disagreeing. It's just I would know people who are in positions where they have to let people go, or they mm. own and run businesses where they have to let people go. And the thinking behind it is. If you are letting somebody go, all right, whether you want to or not, whether they're expecting it or not or whatever, it's just bad news. Mm. And when people get bad news, they tend to do bad things. Mm. So they could change passwords, they could change data, they could blah, 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 the whole thing. So it's actually a safety thing for the company uh, where they say, okay, um, 
listen, uh, you let go. Sorry about that, but you will have to leave the building. You've got an hour to put your stuff in a box and go. But the reason behind it is now, you know yourself uh, 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 that 80%, 90% of people wouldn't do a thing. They'd just sit there crying. All right. But 10% will be, I'll show them, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And that's why they do it. And it's kind of like, uh, when you think about it logically, it makes sense. But I have been on the back of that when I was a much younger person, uh, where you were told today's your last day. Mm. It's like, yeah. great, lovely. Okay, it's three o'clock. Uh, do, do I just leave at five? Yep. <laughs> and know? that's it. See ya. And that's it. You know, the, the, the only thing is kind of you're given like, you know, kind of whatever, a couple of weeks pay or whatever you, you're due. Mm. And that'll get, but I mean, the shock of it. So is just here's else. the thing, Dusty. Here's mm. the thing. Would you prefer to be sat down by somebody in management and told, mm. okay, this is the situation for the benefit of the, you know, for the, the continued betterment of the company so we can continue to employ, you know, the hundreds and thousands of people that are yeah. that are left. Yeah. Uh, we need to let a lot of people go. And unfortunately, you're on that list, right? Uh-huh. You know, unfortunately, the company will go on, um, but look, we just can't keep you with it. So, you know, the friends that you've made uh, over the years, your colleagues, they, they still have somewhere to work. And that yeah. was the choice that we had to make. Yeah. Um, I mean, that sounds quite reasonable and seeing it face to face, that's, that's pretty good. I think that's quite a humane way to deal with it. Um, I'm sure the opposite argument is, okay, you've sat down, you've logged in from home, you're in a comfortable surrounding, you're not around uh, anybody that you can throw anything at and you get an email. Now, it's quite impersonal, but you are in your own space. And if you want to let it out and have a cry or anything like that, sure, who's who's to look at you? So, Dusty, if you were to have a choice between mano a mano or within the safety of your own kitchen and or home office, which would you prefer? The fact you are even asking me that question indicates to me that you would be quite happy to be dumped by text, Niall Kitson. <laughs> of course you wouldn't want to be dumped by text or email or reading about it in the news face to face I think is the only way if you're just going to be a human being about it you've got to do it face to face there is no other way there you go life lessons there we go uh, the thing that makes this whole eBay thing even worse is that with all of the financial uh, announcements going on this week with Apple and Microsoft and, and Tesla as we've mentioned uh, eBay have said that they're going to do a whole load of uh, stock buybacks and they're going to pay a nice handsome dividend to investors isn't that yeah, nice? Yeah because they're still making money for those shareholders the people that really matter in all this Okay, everybody, all together, one, two, three, happy birthday to you. The Apple (laughs) Macintosh, Apple Macintosh, 40 Mm. years ago, this very week, uh, it was first announced to the world. And I think this, I don't know if it's the first glimpse that we got of Steve Jobs and how brilliant he was with the whole marketing and and getting things across to people. But I was looking back on on some stuff to do with the Mac and how they announced it. And during the Super Bowl, back in 1984, there was an ad, all right? And it's an iconic ad these days when you talk to marketing people. And essentially what the ad uh, was saying, we see a robotic kind of population. It was based on the the book 1984. So there's a robotic 
population watching some kind of government propaganda on, on a cinema screen. And then in the next scene, you see like these stormtrooper type soldiers who are chasing this, you know, kind of rather good looking female athlete who's running around with a sledgehammer in her hand and a target in her mind. And the next thing we see is her swinging the hammer around and around and around, lets it go, and it smashes into the screen, smashing it into a thousand pieces. Then a voiceover says, On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Like 1984. It's like, okay. Okay, so we're coming up to something special. They're going to do something special. This sounds kind of good. This is the bit that blew me away because I, I'm into 1984. That that, that was not really a year of conscience for me. Um, So when I look back at the YouTube video of it, I kind of went, this man is brilliant. Firstly, in 1984, they were having Apple events that were full of Apple fanboys. <laughs> they, oh God! They, they go back that far. <laughs> watching, watching the video of that, and again, I was too young to to see or appreciate mm. it. Um, just the pure showmanship, and you know what an audience of marks, really. <laughs> I mean, come on. Like you're meant to be, you know, journalists and whatnot. And here you are hooping and hollering like a bunch of hillbillies. Listen, come on, 40 years later, is it any different? Of course it's not. No, but that's what, it's actually become quite endearing over time. I kind of, it's like the the current Apple announcements. They can be quite soulless when they're all pre-recorded. And you you do want that sort of live people getting far too excited about a, a, an insignificant yeah, new there you feature. Go. So now you love the Apple fanboys. It's like you, you're do. switching your mind left, right I and centre. It's, it's ridiculous. Well, I mean, However, However, on the day, Steve Jobs is on stage and he's building it up, all right? He's kind of going, bloody bad here. IBM had a chance to license Xerox and they let it go. (gasps) And then another 10 years later, they had a chance to license a mini computer and they let it go. (gasps) And now computers, we have them, they've got monitors and then you've got a separate keyboard and then you've got another thing to attach to it and then it's got a big power supply and blah, 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 it's all a bit of a nightmare. So he talks about how complicated they are. And then he introduces the Apple Mac by saying, let me show you the Apple Mac in person, or even better. But today, for the first time ever, I'd like to let Macintosh speak for itself. Hello, I am Macintosh. It is with considerable pride that I introduce a man who's been like a father to me, Steve Jobs. Cue fanboys. <laughs> that's some good cheering. That's that's what I want. That's what I'm here can for. You, can you imagine though being there, right? Because up until that point, you were using a command line interface to to input. So basically, you were just looking at black screen with a, a cursor. Or a, mm. I, I remember this being green for whatever reason, and you would have to type in C drive, change directory to blah blah all this kind of stuff, like blah blah blah, like uh, we had to do on DOS. Can you imagine going from that? To a graphical interface where you're able to see images and huge big letters with different fonts and uh, all that kind of stuff. And then at the end of all this, while your jaw is dropped and you're kind of going, oh, my God, that's amazing. Then Mm. the darn thing talks. It's like, you know, mind blowing. Absolutely mind blowing. Here's something I can use. Here's something I understand. Um, 
don't know if it's even used that you kind of savvy just go oh my god that's that's amazing and Steve Jobs did that I, he did it again with the iPhone years ago um, oh and he did it with the iPod as well there you he, go like so that, that was every, his favourite thing yeah every that successive was- product milestone he has managed to engender that same level of uh, enthusiasm it's quite remarkable absolutely, I, absolutely. Well, my favourite moment uh, my favourite Steve Jobs moment and I, mm. I think this is I don't think many people would pick this but I uh, for me, this just shows the essence of the the gifted marketer and salesman that he was, um, was the announcement of the iPad. Uh, not a, I mean, I, I think we all saw it and went, it's a giant iPhone that you can't, you know, call people on. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and, you know, a tough sell in theory, especially as tablets hadn't found, you know, their niche. They hadn't found where they live. And he just did a, okay. So here's how you use it kind of a thing. And he sat down on a comfortable chair with his iPad in his hand and he's just scrolling through stuff. He's just enjoying using his thing. And I was like, that, that's it. He's shown people how to use and appreciate a tablet. This is the selling point. Yeah, It's a win. It's a win. All the benefits. Uh, that first uh, Apple Macintosh was, I mean, when you look back at it now, first it had a graphic user interface, which was new. It had a mouse. Mm-hmm. That was yep. new as well. Do you know how much RAM it had? Oh, goodness. Oh, I shudder to think. Go on. 128K. Wow. Do you know how big the hard drive was? Did it have a hard drive? Ah, good man, good man. I was trying to trick you there and it didn't work. It had no hard drive. You used a floppy disk. Do you remember the little floppy disks? And you would put the floppy disk into the machine and boot it. And on the floppy disk was the OS and was your storage for all of your files and all of your applications. Well, I tell you, floppy disks back then were not small. They were... Bigger. Uh, speaking uh, speaking of back then, guess how much it cost? Okay. First of its kind, huge positive audience reaction. Mm-hmm. It's Apple. Uh, the, the market was ready. Yeah. Apple. Now, now, Apple doesn't mean as much then as it does now. Now, when you see something from Apple, you strap in and, you know, brace for the worst. Um, when, uh, okay, back back in the day, so I'm going to guess that it wasn't uh, easily accessible to most people because the highest selling computers at the time would have been the ZX Spectrum. They would have been the Commodore 64, you know, the, the home computer, not necessarily a productivity tool per se, uh, in the same way that, you know, the Mac was. And certainly uh, not in possession of a, uh, 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 a GUI. So, oh boy. Okay. I, I'm going to be conservative uh, and say, pay the old money, uh, £1,500. Okay. Uh, in dollars even, let's say 1500 just for, for the sake of it. Okay. The so actual price the, um, for a new Apple Macintosh in 1984 when they released it was $2,500. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's really funny in a way. Because, because you know... The uh, iconic "I'm a Mac and I'm a PC" ads. Mm-hmm. Um, those funky young men who wanted to to be a Mac, they can't afford, afford those. It. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Brilliant as always. Brilliant as always. Last thing on Apple for you. Do you know why it's called a Macintosh? Uh, no, I never Have did you know. Thought about Go on. It. <laughs> no. It's called an Apple Macintosh is actually an Apple. Oh, yeah. Okay, a Macintosh. Uh, yeah. It is. It's a, you know the type of Apple it is, do you? Oh, yeah. You do. Okay, it just yeah. never connected with me. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's what the, it's named after. You know, some people just have blind spots with things. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. like you come across a word and it just it it, it loses its official its uh, intended meaning, and you you end up just sort of going with what you're told. Listen, uh, a couple of things because we on, we only have three or four minutes. Um, there has been a survey done. I think this is interesting that says the Irish people want social media regulation. Now, I've never heard of Irish people wanting regulation in my life. However, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and Uplift have done a survey and they say that 82% of the Irish population would like the algorithms uh, which choose what you see on social media turned off. Bring it. Bring it on. No, I don't agree. I don't agree. I don't agree. Um, They say that experts say that these, uh, they amplify hate speech, which is absolutely true, because once you start looking at one thing, then it just keeps showing you more of that kind of stuff. And it just, Mm -hmm. Um, I don't agree with it in that I would like the option for it to be turned off. Or if I wanted to keep it, I could turn it on. Or uh, something anyway, where if I'm on Facebook, I can actually see what my friends are actually posting rather than suggested posts, sponsored posts, group posts, da da da. Well, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. But uh, in terms of safety features, then, would you prefer enabled by default or go into the settings and enable yourself? I think I would prefer to go in and enable the uh, um, algorithm myself. I would be on the opposite end of that scale. All right. Um, okay. Well, there you go. Uh, we, we shall agree to disagree on that. Uh, TV series that might be worth watching on RT online. Um, it's about AI. It's called Brainwaves. And they've capitalised the AI in the middle of brain. See what they did there? You see? Brainwaves. Very clever. See what uh, they kind did. Of aimed, it's kind of aimed at kids. Microsoft have made it with uh, RT and it's a bit of an explainer as to what AI is because as uh, James O'Connor, who's the Microsoft... Ireland site leader, as we know, uh, he said that AI is no longer a future technology. It's here. So yeah. we've kind of got to tell the kids what it is, even though they're using it, so to speak, which I think is interesting. Well, you do you know what? I mean, th- this is something that should have cross demographic appeal because I was, mm. I was talking to my mother last week and she was like, everything is AI. Like, what, what does this mean? What is it? Uh, exactly. Ex- exactly. Perfect show for it. Yep. Okay. It might be made for kids, but you know, uh, you know, it'll be clear, you know, it will be engaging. Um, so maybe everybody should watch it. Yeah, that's on uh, rt.ie at the moment. Uh, seven years after Apple dropped the uh, three and a half millimeter audio jack for headphones. As you know, I love my wired headphones. You um, do. Yeah, uh, they, a company or one or two companies are bringing them back. All right. Um, not through the three and a half uh, millimeter because they have to use what's called a digital audio converter instead. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, and I saw some new ones and of course, typical tech. They've come up with a name. They've gone uh, blah, blah, blah. What do they call them? Um, TLE headphones. There we go. Three letter and acronyms are back again. All right. A TLE for true lossless earphones because you plug oh, them wow. into your phone and you hear all the... Uh, okay. Okay. Here's, here's a question. Here's a question. Go on. Um, most most of our phones now, their connector is USB C. Yeah. So, how do these things work? Do they have their own adapter, or are they USB C? 
I'm glad you asked. Essentially, uh, the USB-C is the connector and you have to have a digital audio converter in your wireless headphones. So the little jack that connects to the phone using USB-C has actually got that audio converter built into it. It's tiny, mm. it's nano-sized. And that's right. what converts the digital signal coming out of your phone via the USB uh, connector into audio, which you can actually hear in your wired headphones. So it, it does it kind of sort of retrofit it from a digital to an analog signal? Uh, it is. And the, the reason why they're kind of going on about these being true lossless headphones is because uh, Apple have defined that anything over 48 kilohertz uh, sample rate is high resolution. And most DA uh, digital audio converters at the moment are fairly low quality. Now, when I say low quality, the 44.1, which is the same as CD. Sorry, I'm getting really nerdy here. Um, but, you know, capital, oh, 96 or, you know, to whatever the blinking hell it is. It, it, it's way too high that no one would ever notice. All right. And the annoying yeah. thing is, is that you're going to be listening to music off either Apple Music or uh, Spotify, which is compressed anyway. <laughs> yeah. Boom. But if, if you're like me and you happen to still own a, a CD player or would like to own one that, you know, has a, an appropriate jack, maybe this solves a problem or, or maybe you could just stick to, you know, your regular disc man like me and mm. uh, use a set of uh, regular 3.5 millimeter headphones without the need for a, an adapter or anything like that. I, I Am I crazy? Like, I just like the simplicity of where my headphones, there's a wire on, I plug them into something and it works. Instead yeah. of this, pair up by Bluetooth. It's not pairing. Oh no, hang on. It's, it's pairing with something else, not the headphones that I want. Drive you nuts. Anyway. Well, I got, a, I got a great little gadget. Just, just lastly, I got a great little, little gadget. Plugs into a 3.5 millimeter jack of your choice and it's basically a Bluetooth transmitter. So if you've got wireless headphones or anything like that, yeah. Just plug in the 3.5 millimeter jack, connect it, and there you go. Instant wireless. There we go. On that note, Niall, thanks for keeping up to date with the news. You're listening to Tech Radio 2024 from techcentral.ie. A story that we are constantly looking at on Tech Radio is one of the most dangerous yet almost universally ignored by consumers. The topic is, of course, cyber security. It comes in all shapes and sizes, from tightly managed state-sponsored cyber armies to hacktivist collectives, and affects everyone from large organisations right down to regular people being stiffed for a couple of hundred quid on Bitcoin ransoms and what have you. In our 1000th episode, we had just a snippet of an interview with Brian Honan, who is a cyber security expert and CEO of BH Consulting. This week, we're happy to give you the entire conversation, covering everything from hacks and hacktivism to how cybercrime has become big business. So, Brian, one of the interesting things we've seen over the last 15, 16 years or so has been the evolution of the hacker from sort of, I, I don't want to get too much into the um, stereotype of the lone wolf in the basement, but there was there were an awful lot of lone wolves back in the day uh, who just wanted to figure out how networks uh, operated. And um, of course, that uh, stereotype is now sort of behind us. We've had an evolution. Um, and one name going back to the, the start of that, who I would regard as kind of a, a transitional figure, would be one Gary McKinnon. So tell us a little bit about him and, and his sorry tale. Yeah, well, I suppose, as you said, motivation and uh, why people hack. And I know we're not in video and I'm using quotation marks around, uh, air quotes around the word hack, is uh, very, but 
Gary kind of sometimes is is a good example of one motivation that that has drives people to 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 look into breaking into other computers for want of a you know, so one of a better phrase. And his motivation when uh, he was caught breaking into U.S. military computers, he claimed his motivation was down to his belief that the U.S. and U.K. government had uh, suppressed and had information about proof of UFOs and alien life forms and alien technology, and they weren't sharing them with the world. So he wanted to get evidence of that information and release it to the rest of the world so everybody could share it. Now, this happened back in 2002 or thereabouts, I think. And I think if you look back then at the geopolitical landscape, hacking into U.S. military websites and systems several months or a year after the 9-11 attack in 2001 and a country that was on very high alert and very paranoid regards to security was probably not the smartest thing to be doing. And um, so the U.S. came after Gary McKinnon with all guns blazing and, you know, wanted to have him uh, arrested, which he was, but more more importantly, deported to the U.S. where he would then face trial. Um, and he could have fa- he could have faced uh, decades of, of, of imprisonment if that happened. So subsequently, there was a long uh, legal process. And uh, actually, it's interesting when you look back at the, the case and you, you look at the names involved. So back then uh, in 2012, the Home Secretary home secretary for the UK was Theresa May. And she uh, blocked the extradition to the, to the US uh, because the uh, Director of Public Prosecution in the UK was a gentleman called Keir Starmer. Uh, so uh, two names that are still probably more well-known today now than, than Gary McKinnon. But uh, yeah, Gary's motivation was of, if you like, of curiosity or trying to get information and make the information available to everybody else. And of course, then from that kind of personal motivation, we came the uh, political one because we, we encountered this sort of hybrid thing called hacktivism, uh, where you had an awful lot of fairly sense of sensitive and embarrassing correspondence dumped onto the web by the likes of WikiLeaks. But we also had sort of collectives like Anonymous, um, who, who claimed to have these sort of grand ideals and political motivations and, you know, subversive and sophisticated ways of taking down websites. But neither really subversive nor sophisticated, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I think that we've, we've always had hacktivism around. Uh, so you would have, you know, even before Anonymous, you would have groups who would be hacking websites based on uh, maybe a political move, motive or an ethical motive. So, for example, you, you might be hacking a, a certain country's website in protest against their international work or whatever they're doing. So, for example, it was quite common uh, over the years for websites based in Pakistan to be attacked by pro-Indian activists and, li- and likewise Indian websites to be attacked by pro-Pakistan um, uh, activists. Similarly, even today, we have uh, ongoing attacks against Israeli uh, websites and we've got ongoing attacks against uh, Palestinian type uh, websites or, or uh, sites that support those causes. And that has, ha- that, that has always been the case. 
I think what Anonymous brought to the uh, to the table was a they were very much better organized, and I think for want of a better phrase, they had a much better marketing department than many other activist groups. They were very good at using Twitter and social media to promote themselves and to promote the work they've been done. So typically, uh, other activist groups would have defaced a website and would have left it at that, whereas uh, Anonymous, Lulzsec and others would have compromised a a website, uh, boasted about on social media, but in a a humorous way, in a a very uh, uh, engaging way, uh, and got a got a big audience as a result, but they would also uh, uh, publish the information as well. So if they got sensitive information, they would publish that online as well to, to augment or reinforce their, 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 their messaging. So yes, the motivations probably haven't changed a whole lot, as you said, now, but they, we also, you know, the, the sophistication of the attacks may not have been uh, overly sophisticated, but the methodology they used to promote the, the attacks and how they did it, you know, if you do look at and analyze the attacks, it's it's still a lot of things we're dealing with today. It's social engineering, it's password reuse, it's lack of patching of systems, it's it, it, and that's how Anonymous did it. And they also created this mythology about their group being huge worldwide, and that everybody was in it from people working in government to people working in within the police, working within within law enforcement, working within the data centers. So who could you trust? And, you know, we are everywhere. So it was a very good, uh, you know, it wasn't just hacking computer systems. It was hacking social media from a, a publicity point of view and hacking and social engineering people's minds into, in, in, into on, on believing that they were bigger than they were. Yeah, very, very much hacking the culture. Uh, and I think when a lot of um, uh, members of Anonymous were brought um, uh, before the courts, not that many of them in real terms. Um, and if, if memory serves, I don't even think the penalties they incurred were that, um, that severe, but it was very much a a collective of, gosh, I, I hate to go back to the basement, but I mean, these these were not high-end people. These were guys who had downloaded uh, a piece of software to participate in DDoS attacks. You know, not, not didn't require an awful lot of skill to participate in that. No, so you're talking about the low orbit internet cannon or LOIC? Yeah, remember, but low orbit ion cannon. Yeah. Ion cannon, yeah. Because it has to be a Star Wars reference. <laughs> So yeah, the it, it was you know the tool was pretty basic. It, it just you know install this on your computer. Here's the IP address of the website to target, and it'll send out loads of packets to that website. So lots of people would download it and use it. And yes, the majority of people who were traced and arrested probably probably were people who just simply downloaded the tool to take part. And you know a lot of the motivation for the attacks were very much. Uh, in line with the Occupy movement at the time as well, anti-capitalism, uh, protesting against the financial co- collapse that had happened uh, in the late 2000s, early 2010s. So 
there's a lot of sympathy for the causes out there and a lot of people would have got caught up in it. And, and he, as you said, many of those who got arrested were probably uh, those people who wanted to make a statement and download the tool uh, to do it. But there were some sophisticated and some very good and skilled people in the group as well. Uh, two of them were actually Irish. Uh, if you remember the Lulsec group, when, when they were uh, eventually caught, uh, two of the individuals were, were, were here in Ireland and uh, are highly competent and highly skilled individuals. Uh, I believe they were the first two people as well to be convicted for cybercrime in Ireland for they actually took part in the uh, hacking of the Fine Gael website way, way back in early 2000. Uh, wow. <laughs> you're, 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 you're digging stuff up from the back of my mind here. <laughs> uh, don't ask me for what date that hack happened, but that was back, back, back in early, to, I think the 2000s or sometime from one of the elections back then. Well, uh, if we were to look for more, um, uh, I suppose, more recognisable personalities from the hacking community. Um, I, I hesitate even to call it community. Of course, we uh, have Derek Snowden, um, the world's most famous whistleblower, um, who went, I suppose still is, very much of a folk hero and now a, a guest of the um, of the Russian state uh, for probably the rest of his life. Um, but his contribution was actually... Um, very necessary and showed an awful lot of what governments were doing, uh, allegedly in our best interests, but um, very easily not. Yeah, absolutely. So like Edward Snowden uh, was a contractor to the NSA uh, and uh, was a SharePoint administrator uh, who downloaded a whole lot of secret and confidential files onto a DVD or various CDs and brought them out of the NSA and released them online in to to bring to light the prison program. Sorry about the pun there. <laughs> <laughs> to bring to light the prison program. <laughs> but, uh, 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 and that highlighted to what many of us suspected was going on, that, that Western governments uh, were... Uh, breaching people's privacy rights and doing mass surveillance online, uh, as you said, ostensibly for the greater good, but, you know, potentially breaking lots of different laws, both uh, internationally and, and nationally. So you could say he brought some stuff to light that, uh, and some lots of good came out of it. But then you'd have the other side of the camp who would probably, especially in the United States, would cast Edward Snowden as being a traitor and a spy and should be tried for treason. And if he ever leaves Russia, that's probably what will happen to him. He, he probably will be arrested and probably will face trial in, in the U.S. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's, again, his, his motivation, probably similar to Gary McKinnon's, was probably more to release information like he, he saw Edward Snowden saw what was going on, probably thought there was harm being done and it w people needed to know about this. And you mentioned WikiLeaks. There was lots of other uh, stories that came to light through WikiLeaks, which people leaked out onto WikiLeaks uh, that probably wouldn't have come to light if uh, they, they, hadn't, they, they hadn't done that. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, people will hack break into computers or, or, or leak information for 
for various different motivations. One of the interesting things uh, that we've noticed over the last while is that, you know, no sector is immune from cybercrime, from getting hacked, from having user information stolen and published online. And companies that you would have thought would know better seem to be just as vulnerable as everyone else. I mean, Yahoo, Facebook, LinkedIn, MySpace, pretty much every big tech company has suffered some kind of major and certainly very embarrassing breach. Um, why do you think big tech falls into these traps? Is these, are these organizations so big that there are literally so many holes you can poke in them? Or is there kind of a, a lack of operational capability that firms that are based on engineering are investing in security last? when it should be higher up on their list of priorities. Yeah, I think, you know, I don't think there's any one reason that we can pick out, out of those you, you gave there to say, this is the reason all these all these companies were hacked. I think there's probably various elements of all you've mentioned there for each of them. So, for example, LinkedIn's famous hack back, what, in 2014, uh, when all the user passwords were released. Well, like, they were storing, the, they stored everybody's passwords in the plain text file. You know, so, you know, that, that's obviously very, very bad practice. Uh, and once the criminals got in, it, that information was there for the taking. And we've got lots of examples of large tech companies being hacked. Like one of the most famous ones is RSA, uh, who are a security company. And they got hacked pretty badly by, uh, now, in fairness, it was using then unknown vulnerabilities, but the, the attack originated from an Excel spreadsheet uh, uh, with the title of uh, uh, salaries for the next year or HR, you know, HR related title, the the email client that on on the person's PC actually put that email into junk, but they took it out of junk, clicked on the attachment, the Excel spreadsheet ran and downloaded the uh, vulnerabilities or exploited the vulnerabilities on that computer, and from there, the attackers were able to 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 compromise RSA. RSA at the time didn't have a chief security officer. So you had a security company who didn't have somebody responsible for security in the security company. You had LinkedIn, as you said, a big tech company at the time uh, who store and all users' passwords in plain text. And if you examine all of these hacks, you probably will see certain elements that if somebody had stopped doing that or, or had coded the system differently might have... Uh, protected. But I think a lot of these hacks come down to, A, if you've got tech companies who are trying to uh, get market share pretty quickly and pretty fast, they're going to be developing systems very quickly, deploying systems very quickly, and there may not be time for security to catch up. I do think the comment you made there was security being towards the end of the thought process is probably the root cause in many cases, and we still see it today in that you've got lots of systems going out that are being uh, uh, being deployed and sold on the market and security seems to be an afterthought or something that we'll, we'll do later on. And we're, going to, we're seeing it now with uh, IoT devices. I guarantee you we'll see with the AI systems there's going to be uh, fundamental security flaws that are going to appear over the next 6 to 12 months in these new systems that we go 
Now, have we not learned from the past? You know, like back when Windows came out first, there's lots of security bugs. And we're, you know, we, we, we thought we did them all addressed with, with personalized computing. And then suddenly uh, we now had uh, uh, mobile devices uh, security and we, we, we had this repeat the same problems with mobile phones and tablets uh, from a security point of view. And we went into the cloud and that's the same things as, as, as well. You know, like there's a lot of stuff that companies, I think, aren't taking responsibility for when it comes to security. Getting to markets quickly, getting uh, uh, lots of customers on board and getting revenue in is the primary focus. And security is something that we think about at a later stage. It, it does seem to be very much the standard practice, just that constant iteration, uh, adding features, uh, perhaps at the, creating problems where, where none existed before. Um, and of course, the perpetual advice to uh, make sure you keep your OS patched at all times. Uh, however, with Heartbleed, that just didn't happen with fairly catastrophic results. Yeah, so Heartbleed uh, was a good example of uh, and it's where we're, we're seeing more things happening nowadays as well. So uh, we've moved from, if you like, closed systems and closed networks. So 20 years ago, 25 years ago, most companies had little or no connectivity to the outside world. Their networks were relatively uh, secure from that point of view. You, you know, most companies back in the early to mid-90s weren't really using the internet. It might be just for email. But they weren't using it definitely not in any way, shape, or form to what how we're using today, and how it's so interrupted, uh, interconnected. But uh, and a lot of the systems that were built then were built with this with the, with the viewpoint of 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 being kind of isolated, if you like, in in our networks. But over time, this has changed, and systems have become more complex, and companies have used uh, open source technologies to augment their own commercial technology as well. So Heartbleed was a bug in the open SSL uh, 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 software. And open SSL is is a, a way to set up uh, secure communications uh, across between different different systems. So lots of companies were using open SSL but many of these companies weren't really paying for op- the features of OpenSSL or the, the open source project. I think at the time, if I remember correctly, the, there was two people in the whole world who were looking after OpenSSL as a project in their own free time, uh, paying for the, the servers, everything as, a, as an open source project, as a hobby. And yet, yet all these commercial companies who are charging millions and billions to their customers to use their products, which had OpenSL embedded in it, not support, not paying it. So we've, Heartbleed was probably the first good example of supply chain uh, or dependency security risks, where we have systems that are interconnected or relying on, on other third-party systems or other third-party software. And if you haven't verified those third parties or have no way of securing the risk with those third parties, you're open to weaknesses in those systems. And, and we're, we're, as we've opened up our businesses more and more and migrated more and more to the cloud, every company, every organization now has these 
interdependencies on uh, cloud systems that might, might in turn be relying on third-party software, either open source or closed source. And, uh, you know, that, that can bring us to a lot of vulnerabilities and dependencies. And, and we saw that earlier on this year with the Movis uh, security flaw. Uh, so Movis, for those listening who may not be familiar, is a uh, enterprise piece of software that allows for the easy transfer of large files between companies. So it would often be used by companies, for example, who would be doing payroll for large organizations to transfer from their clients the salary details of the, the employees to then run the payroll system and send it back to their clients uh, uh, for, to, to pay for the for their staff. And we had companies like Aer Lingus, Boots, British Airways, I think there's over a thousand companies worldwide who are using movers that were uh, uh, compromised as a result of a bug and mover being discovered by criminals and the criminals gone in, compromising all these systems and stealing that information out. So we do have a, a big, you know, a, a big challenge from 2024 onwards when it comes to uh, software dependency, system dependencies is managing that and Harpley, I think, was, was a good example of the very first one of these issues where we've had this problem. Mm, another massive uh, milestone in cybersecurity was also WannaCry, um, which I think kind of stands out as being one of the first major ransomware attacks, I think. I think, well, I think what the really stood out with WannaCry was the impact it had because uh, people say it was one of the biggest attacks, you know, but it depends what you mean by biggest. Is it the, the amount of money that was stolen, the amount of systems that were compromised, the amount of data that was compromised, or the complexity of, of it? But regardless, I think what WannaCry did was it kind of really brought home the threat that ransomware posed to organizations worldwide. Because up until then, ransomware was very much a slowly a slow-spreading threat. It, it, it spread via email or it spread via... A, getting people to click on a, on, a, on a compromised website and that, that would download onto their computer and it would ransom that particular computer. So for an organization, the risk of ransomware before WannaCry was relatively low because if somebody did click on a, 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 an attachment that started a ransomware attack, it probably only impacted a small number of computers. What WannaCry brought was that uh, WannaCry exploited uh, vulnerabilities in the Windows 7 operating system automatically. So it will infect a machine and then automatically go and look for another machine to infect. So it spread very, very quickly worldwide uh, and through organizations and had huge impact operationally on different organizations. Probably most famously was the NHS in the UK well, well, was crippled for several days while uh, their computers were were, were were cleaned up. So WannaCry is a landmark in the ransomware uh, landscape from the point of view that it automated ransomware attacks and then it, it gave criminals the ability to have a much bigger impact and therefore a much uh, stronger, if you like, bargaining place to go to from an uh, extortion point of view and demanding extortions. Mm, and an experience that uh, we shared when the HSE uh, was attacked. Very, very, very similar uh, situation. So looking towards things that have actually helped make us safe 
over the last few years. We love to talk about the General Data Protection Regulation. The best thing the EU has ever done for us. Everybody loves those cookie warnings on the front of websites these days. Um, thank you very much, Europe. Um, and yes, it is a gold standard internationally. People do seem to look at GDPR and go, oh, wait, we can protect people and it works. Yes. And I think the phrase you use there, Niall, is very important. That, um, people often forget this when they talk about GDPR. You said it's there to protect people. And that's what GDPR is, is to protect people. But when you do look at GDPR, it's the general data protection regulation. And lots of people default to the word data. It's there to protect data. Well, no, it's there to protect people. GDPR is to protect our rights as human beings to privacy and freedom of movement, et cetera, et cetera. So it is very important from that point of view. And what GDPR brought to the fore was that if you are an organization that has uh, been entrusted with data belonging to EU residents, you are obliged to protect that information. And part of that protection is on the security side. So I think it's important to remember GDPR is not a security standard or a security regulation. It's a human rights. It's a privacy protection regulation. And part of that is we need to have good security to, to support GDPR. So it did bring in a lot of uh, good from, from that point of view. And that companies did have to sit back and think, okay, where, what data do we have? Where is that data? What threats and risks are there, are there to that personal data? And what do we need to do to protect that personal data? Uh, so that what's brought the conversation along. And, and I think also the, the mandatory breach disclosure of any serious breaches has also brought out to the conversation, well, how did this happen? And so that other organizations can, can, can learn from it too. So GDPR has been, has been good. For, for security from, from that point of view. But uh, uh, I do think there's, we are seeing changes happening on both sides of the Atlantic in the US and, and over here uh, as to regulations around cybersecurity uh, that are going to have a big impact as well. And of course, Europe isn't done uh, when it comes to the digital space either. I mean, there's a, a couple of other, we have the Digital Operation Resiliency Act um, we've also got the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act. Um, Europe has been fairly proactive when it comes to uh, consumer protection and security. Oh, there is. And there's a lot more coming. So uh, you mentioned DORA uh, and the Digital Marketing Act as well. You have the AI Act, which is very timely, which has a lot of protections in it from a privacy point of view. Uh, very significantly, just this, this last week, we had the Cyber Resilience Act agreed. So Cyber Resilience Act it's actually going to make it mandatory for software and hardware vendors to have minimum security uh, built into their products if they want to sell it, within, sell it within the European Union. So, you know, that's something that I've often given out about in the past is that I, I could go, I can buy a, uh, a smart camera uh, and that smart camera has to meet standards from an electrical and health and safety point of view that if I plug it in, it doesn't explode or it won't burn my hand or cause any, any damage. But from a security and privacy point of view, there was no protections uh, around it. That is going to change. Uh, companies selling hardware and our software into the EU will have to uh, meet minimum security standards to make sure that their products are fit for purpose. And that's going to be 
a big benefit to not just consumers, but also businesses as well. We're also seeing an update, and this will come into effect October next year. And I think it's going to have a, a it's kind of got, been going quietly in the background. And I don't think people are going to, don't, I think people don't appreciate now the uh, impact it can have. And that's the, the update to the Network Information Security Directive, uh, the NIST2 Directive, which will come into effect in October of next year. And that means that any organization are operating within what would be deemed critical infrastructure, uh, such as utilities, companies, finance, transport, uh, food, etc., have to meet minimum security standards as well. But not only that, they have to manage the cybersecurity risk within their supply chain. So coming back to our talk about Heartbleed uh, earlier on and, and the supply chain and dependencies, if you're a telecommunications company, for example, you're going to be required by NIST2 to have certain security measures in place. You're also going to have to make sure that your supply chain is managing that risk. So if you're an IT supplier to a telecoms company, you, while NIST2 may not apply directly to you, your, your, your customer is going to be imposing the requirements of NIST2 on you to make sure they can manage their risk and their exposure when it's due. So I think that's going to have a significant impact uh, on, on organizations on, on, on businesses in Ireland in that if you're operating within that sphere or on, on the periphery of that sphere and you're, 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 you've got customers in uh, that will be regulated by NIST2, you, you will be impacted by it either directly or indirectly. So there's a lot of work happening uh, at the EU level. And I think it's, you know, when we're seeing similar uh, conversations happening in the U.S., uh, you know, we, we, we had after, you know, you mentioned now the HS, HSE um, ransomware attack at the same time in the U.S. as the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack, which was a uh, gasoline or uh, supplier in, in the U.S. Was, was hit by ransomware. That led to increased uh, gasoline prices in the east coast of, of America, which led to, to increased food prices, which, you know, had a knock-on effect society-wise. And President Biden afterwards issued an executive order about government agencies having to make sure they have uh, uh, verified their supply chain. And uh, so we, we, we now have what's called an S-bomb a software bill of materials in the US where you, if you're providing to US government agencies, you have to state exactly what's in your software, uh, what components are there and what security features are, are, are in that. And we are here in talks at the US about maybe having a federal privacy law similar to GDPR as well. So there's a lot of, you know, I think governments are starting to wake up and say, well, you know, we've we've left self-regulation to the big tech and the tech industry, and it hasn't worked. Uh, You know, we're still seeing the same mistakes over and over again. So maybe it's it's time for us to regulate and ensure this is happening. The danger with regulation, though, is that companies will just see the regulation as a bare minimum to, to, to meet and think they're secure when actually maybe in most cases, when you look at the regulations, What's required from a security point of view is is the you know is, is not advanced security. It's it's basic. It's it's literally basic security. And if you want to be secure, you, you probably you probably have to take a lot more steps above and beyond. But look, it's a start, and it's a positive start, in my opinion. 
And that was Brian Honan from BH Consulting. You'll find him at bhconsulting.ie. That link, of course, in the description area of the podcast. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. That's it for our show this week. Do check out some of the other stories that are online we didn't have time to include in the podcast today, including Apple putting the brakes on Project Titan. Bitcoin values are tanking, but not for the reasons you might think. And we also have an amazing conversation with Microsoft's National Technology Officer, Kira McCorry. You'll find those and more online right now at techcentral.ie. Of course, we're back again next Friday with a brand new podcast online and on RTE Radio 1 Extra. Do remember to share the podcast with a friend you think might like it. Just tell them to search for Tech Radio Ireland on Apple, Spotify or YouTube. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and Nog Kitson, thanks for listening. Take care. Remember, you can get the latest Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. Share the knowledge and invite a friend to listen. Search Apple, Spotify, or YouTube for Tech Radio Ireland or listen with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Tech Radio is produced by dustpod.io for techcentral.ie. From me, Artemis, live long and prosper. 